Well, it's good to be back with you today. Um, as you know, I was out last week. I was out at the beaches at Church of Our Savior, uh, which is on Beach Boulevard, and it's growing. And there's exciting things happening there. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Um, but this is the third Sunday of Advent. And I don't know if you're aware that each one of the four Sundays of Advent has an attending virtue, something that, that goes with it. And the theme for this, the, the third Sunday of Advent, is joy. So this morning, the text that is assigned is John the Baptist saying something that not only I wish for you, but Jesus wishes for you as well, and that is that your joy would be complete. Jesus says that in John 15. He tells his disciples, I'm teaching these things so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. In this passage, John the Baptist is describing a decrease of himself at the increase of Christ, and he says, my joy is complete. I'm going to make the suggestion that the increase of Christ brings eternal joy for those who see his beauty. Now, um, my outline for this sermon is I'm going, to, I'm going to address two temptations that steal joy and then three answers that John the Baptist gives to the, in the face of those temptations. And I'll let you start thinking about what temptations there might be that could steal your joy. But what I'm going to do first is I'm going to... Um, I'm going to give a definition because if, you, um, if you're, you know, around Christian circles quite a bit, there's a lot of effort made to make a distinction between joy and another emotion. That's the emotion, happiness. Pull up any dictionary and look up the word joy, and happiness is almost always in the first definition of it. And I think that we're splitting hairs sometimes to make a distinction. But joy is an emotion and it's a good emotion. It's why it's called one of the virtues. It's a good emotion. It's, an, it's something we feel. It's a feeling. And it's the same, for all intents and purposes, it's the same as being happy, the feeling of happiness. So what I do want to distinguish, though, is I want to distinguish Christian joy from what I'll call general joy. And let me give you an illustration. I oftentimes will pray and work on my sermons on my back porch uh, in our house. And um, a couple of years ago, I found in the corner of our yard, before it was cleared out, um, a cassia plant. And it, was, it looked like a dead stick, but then it had two or three green leaves on it. And then vines just growing and dominating it. So I pulled the vines away. I dug up this thing and I planted it in the other corner of the, of the yard, right in the corner of the fence. And, you know, it looked like I had taken a dead branch and just stuck it in the ground because there was nothing. After I planted it, none of the leaves were left on it. It just looked like this scrawny little dry dead stick. Um, but then it grew. It took root. It grew. It's gotten so big that now it's taller than me. It's, in my opinion, it's in the perfect spot in the corner of the yard. You see it when you pull in the neighborhood. It looks right across the retention pond behind us. And I just sit there every November. It fills with these big yellow buttercup um, blooms on it. And it's just glorious. And I just sit there and I think, I'm so happy about my cassia. And, and the plant itself brings me pleasure, and the fact that I found it in the corner and saved it and got it over there brings me pleasure every November. But you know what month it is now, right? It's December, and the yellow buttercups, they're gone. They've fallen down. The green leaves, they're kind of looking yellow. The cold does what it does every year. And I look at it now, and it makes me sad because I remember its former glory from November. And, and that's an example of general joy, general happiness, circumstantial stuff that pleases us, but it's always temporary. It's always temporary. And temptation number one is to seek happiness apart from God, to seek happiness in his blessings without them moving you to the blesser himself. 
that is a huge temptation, and it's part of a materialistic worldview. And we are in a materialistic culture, and we're in an affluent part of that culture. And so there is millions, there are millions of things that could bring you temporary joy or happiness. You see them all around you. I wonder if you are emotionally whole enough to be aware of where your happiness is right now. What is making you happy, or what do you think will make you happy that you're pursuing? I I keep coming back to our Declaration of Independence because we have that phrase that we all know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Part of our Declaration of Independence, but that's independence from another country and a government government overreach. But I sometimes think in this materialistic culture, it's actually independence from God that we're so often seeking. I want the joy of his blessings, but I don't want him or his agenda or the things that give him joy. I want what I want, and that will make me happy. That's, That's the huge temptation. But the thing is, no joy will remain apart from God. What do you have that makes you happy right now? Or what could you get in this life that will make you happy that will not eventually decrease? Is there anything? Where is your joy? You know, we talk about IQ, intelligence quotient, and there's a thing called EQ, emotional quotient. And it's the ability to be self-aware. Are you aware of your feelings? Are you in touch with those? Or do you go through a lot of your life and a lot of your day unaware of what is driving you emotionally? I mean, how do you feel right now? The list of emotions is huge. I mean, you could be anxious. You could be joyful. You could be sad. You could be sorrowful. You could, I mean, you can keep, keep going. The list goes on and on and on. Are you aware of how you feel? And then to take it further, are you aware of where your happiness comes from? We all experience bits of happiness here and there. What brings you happiness? And then what are you seeking to bring you happiness? Now, back to, that's general. I'm talking general kind of joy there. Back to specific Christian joy. I came across a definition on the internet that uh, was from John Piper. I really liked it, so I wrote it down. His definition of Christian joy is that it is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. So it is an emotion, but it's a good one. That's why it's called a virtue, like the others. It is something that is generated by the Holy Spirit. And it is one of the list of the nine fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Actually, they're all engraved on our baptismal font in Greek back there. All the fruit of the Spirit. And it is a, so it's a good feeling, and it's in the soul because... It's not just something that we feel or that we think in our our body or our chemicals. It's a soul. The inner heart, the very core of a person is resonating with something that the Holy Spirit is joyful about as well. So it's a it's a spirit-to-spirit connection. So this is, this is a, an important thing. And it is as he causes us to see the beauty, the beauty of Christ. When we read the scriptures and we we reflect on the story, the narrative of who God is and what he's done in Christ. And then we look out in the world and we see him at work. So back to my general joy. I actually don't think that's a general joy in my case because every time I see my little cassia plant, my big cassia plant now, I worship God. I give thanks to him. I see the beauty of creation. I think, Jesus, you are the perfect artist. You are the one that created that. Those little flowers and the way, it, the, way this, the seasons. And, and it's not a temporary joy because even though the flowers fade, God who made them doesn't. 
and it points me to him, and that worship is eternal, and I find myself praising him. I mean, that's a small example, but there are bigger ones as well. So what would have been just general joy points me to the beauty of Christ, the creator, and his work in the world. So temptation number one is seeking joy apart from God. And then I've given you the Christian joy definition. So now I want to go to the scriptures and we're going to start looking at John the Baptist's situation and his answer. So it's very easy to find the page number. Gus tells me it's 888, page number 888 in the Pew Bible. And we're going to see how, what happens here in this situation and how John the Baptist responds in a way that says for him, he can say, my joy is complete. It is full. It's the exact same word in the Greek, full and complete. Now, what had happened here is um, the second temptation, the first one being having joy apart from God, the second temptation occurs for John the Baptist's followers. And that's the temptation to have envy when God's blessing is in someone else's life and you're watching it. When God is increasing or he's doing something over there and you're here and you start to get envy. You want that. Why can't I have that, God? And that's what happened to them. So um, the, the, the huge crowd that was around John the Baptist where he was baptizing had now shifted and many of them were going over to Jesus. And Jesus and his disciples were also baptizing not far from where John was. So they had like two stations, right? Pick where you want to be baptized, John the Baptist or Jesus. And the crowds were shifting over to Jesus. I have to wonder, but this is for another sermon, I have to wonder why didn't the whole crowd go over there, right? I mean, one's the Messiah and one's a prophet. But anyway, they were split. There were two camps. And um, let's look at what they say in, in verse uh, 26 here in this passage. It says, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, you know, the baptism, the water stuff. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, man, they're all going to him. You can almost hear the whining. They're all going to him. They're bent out of shape about this because the crowd is shifting. Their ministry is decreasing and they have envy that Jesus is increasing. I want to say, leave John and go to Jesus. Go where, the, where God's work is happening. But see, they're envious and they start to complain about that. Now, John's answer, his first answer is to accept God's provision. So look at what he says, verse 27. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. God's provision. It is God who gives the increase or the decrease. It is the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. He is the one. It's his provision. And so John is able to have complete joy because he's accepted God is the one who's provided. God gave him the big crowd initially and then God moved it on, and he was okay with that. You know, it's funny that this, this kind of envy of another person's ministry occurs in a number of places in the Bible. Um, I found one that was way back in Moses' ministry with Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua is the successor to Moses. He's the strong military general who leads all of the Israelites into the land of promise. When Moses was disqualified for his sin, he couldn't go in. Joshua takes them in. He's one of the two spies along with a guy named Caleb, who go into the land. The other 10 come back and say, we can't do this. But Joshua says, oh, yes, we can, because God is with us. So a man of strong faith. But earlier in his ministry, something happened where he got the envy of another ministry. 
You see, Moses was being overrun with leading these hundreds of thousands of Israelites. And God said, choose 70 people and I will put my spirit on them like I've done for you. So they choose these 70 and they come over to the tent of meeting and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they all start prophesying. They're starting to declare God's wonders and what he's going to do and what a great savior he is. But for some reason that isn't recorded in numbers, two of them were hanging back in the camp and weren't over at the tent of meeting. Um, But the Holy Spirit came on them there. But when the 68 were sort of done prophesying, it kind of, I don't know, wound down for them, the other two kept prophesying all throughout the the towns or the the like little tent city that they had made. They just keep talking about God's glory. And, And then here's what happens. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. You see, he understood something about God's provision. It's God who gives his spirit. It's God who builds his kingdom. It is not Moses' kingdom. Moses was happy to receive whatever God wanted him to have. A lot or a little. Just like the Apostle Paul. I've learned the secret of being content, whether I am abounding or have nothing. And that was because his, his, he was accepting that all things come from the Lord. In fact, we say that at the liturgy. All things come from you, O Lord, and of what is your own, we are giving back to you. This isn't just, uh, this isn't just the, the, the disciples of John the Baptist or Joshua. This is also Jesus' disciples. In Mark's gospel, it says, John the apostle came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is saying, don't try to stop them. This is something that God is doing in my name through that person. Just let it go. And what I'm describing here is the difference between a kingdom mindset and a thiefdom mindset. The thiefdom says, I've got to build my little thing right here. I've got to grab all I can. It all depends on me, my giftedness, my leadership, my ability, instead of accepting that God is the one who gives all things. And John the Baptist got that. So he was able to have joy and peace in the midst of the crowd shifting. But the thiefdom thinking um, creeps into us. It creeps into us personally in in our households. It creeps into the church. I mentioned that I was at another church last Sunday, Church of Our Savior, and I thought it was kind of funny because um, I ran into a couple that I thought were members of this church. And they were there. And they were like, hey, wait, what are you doing here? And, And I rejoiced that they were there. Because I really, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that I'm doing in this next two-year season is I'm serving at the bishop's request and with the vestry's blessing as the dean of a deanery. That's why I get the important title. I'm now the very reverend, if you notice that. <laughs> so my job is to help the bishop help the other churches in our geographic area live into the vision of starting new churches, 
strengthening existing ones and raising up new leadership. So I went out there to Church of Our Savior to see what they're doing to encourage their senior pastor and to help plant a youth ministry. Our church is actually going to send two of our interns there in January to start a youth group for a church that doesn't have one. Pray for them. Go out there. If you, like the couple that I saw last week, they have a house out by the beach so that when they're out at the beach, that's where they go to church. I celebrate that. See, fiefdom says, you're one of mine. What are you doing over there? Get back to, get home. That's thiefdom. Kingdom says God is the one who provides all things. And I am convinced that you cannot outgive him. If you sow into the kingdom generously, you will not be able to outgive God. He will bring the increase right behind that. It's like the open hand closed thing, right? If I hold on to it, he can't take anything out of my hand, but he can't put anything else in it. If I do it like this, I'm going to give you this for this season. I'm going to move that there and move this. And I keep going kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. You can't outgive him. Do you remember that movie, Brewster's Millions? It's, it's an old, older, somebody corrected me. It's not a truly old mo- movie because it's not black and white and it's not like from the 50s, but it's from like the 80s. And it's Richard Pryor and he's, he's a poor man who gets this surprising inheritance of $300 million, but it has a catch. The deal is this. Right now you get a million dollars, no strings attached, that's your inheritance. Or if in the next 30 days you can give away $30 million, then you get all $300 million. But you can't lose more than 5% of it on gambling. You can't give more than 5% of it away to charity. And you can't personally benefit from whatever you do with that $30 million. So you can't just go buy a bunch of stocks in your portfolio. You have to give it away. And you can't tell anyone that you're doing it. So the movie's all about Richard Pryor going from rags to riches and ridiculous generosity. And he finds that it's very hard to give away $30 million in a month with those stipulations. It's a funny movie. But the idea here is that the kingdom of God is so big, you can't outgive him. So let's not think fiefdom. Let's think kingdom. God, all things are yours. So the first thing for John the Baptist that helps him keep his joy is he accepts God's provision whether it's a lot or a little in his situation. So the second answer, so that was verse 27. He said, you can't, nothing comes to you except from God. Verse 28, look at that. His second answer says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So when the crowd grew and John the Baptist was speaking truth to power and he was baptizing people and he was giving these sermons and all this energy was there, the leaders sent people out to him. Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah returned? And he says, nope, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And they say, well, then give us an answer. And he says, quoting from Isaiah, you know this quote. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. You see, he had accepted God's purpose for him. His purpose was to be the forerunner for Jesus, to go and till up the soil, get people excited and ready, and then the Christ is going to come. That was his purpose purpose for for John the Baptist. And if you are living into your purpose, you will be happy. So I wonder if you know it. Do you know specifically who you are? Who has God made you to be? And then what then should you do with that? This includes your specific spiritual gifts. This includes your natural skill set, your natural gifts. It includes your experiences in life up to this place. You are uniquely positioned to do a ministry that God has for you. You are different than the person sitting right next to you. That is part of God's purpose for you. Do you know it? Have you accepted it? Now, it's not easy to arrive at it. 
there's some work. There's, there's a lot of prayerful contemplation that's necessary. The community of faith is necessary. You've got to talk to other believers who can then speak truth into your life. They can say, you're really good at this, and, but you shouldn't do that. And, you know, they can help guide you. And then you arrive at a purpose that God has given, and then your vision for your life can grow up out of that. So your joy will be there if you accept God's purpose for you. So his provision, nothing comes except that God is giving to you, and his purpose. Now you catch on, I'm doing three Ps here, so in case you help you, help you remember this. The third answer, I'm going to give you the P word first, and then I'm going to explain the study behind this text, and it's going to distract you, and I don't want you to miss the third P. It is accepting God's passion, and I'll come back to this, but his passion is that lost people would repent and come back to him. And have a relationship with him. That's his passion. Now hold on as we go to verse 29. It says this. John John says this. John the Baptist. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. What is he talking about? He's the best man in some some wedding. And what, what does he mean when he hears the bridegroom's voice? There are at least two things culturally very different about weddings back then. The first is that there was a lot more purity brought into the marriage ceremony. I'm doing two weddings, one over Christmas break and one early in the year. And I've said to the couples in preparation, I said, don't be the last person to leave your reception. Because do you know what that implies? It implies you're not eager to get to your wedding night which implies that you've been busy doing things that you should not have been doing. So purity was really important. And then the other thing is, privacy was not anything like what we enjoy today. So, and their weddings went on multiple days. It was a big feast. That's why they ran out of wine in, at the, the, where Jesus does his first sign. So the, the job of the best man is this. He's got to prepare everything. He's got to make sure that this marriage comes together. That means party preparations, but it also means the wedding night chamber. He needs to find a place that is secluded and somewhat private, and he needs to guard it and have it ready. And then, because see, a marriage isn't complete until it's consummated, You don't just say the words around communion. You actually come up and eat the bread and the wine. Same thing in marriage. You don't just say the vows. You then go to your wedding night. And so one of the Mishnahs, and all the scholars point this out if you do some of the background stuff, one of the Jewish Mishnahs said very um, indiscreetly, the best man would stand there, and when he heard the voice of the groom, he would come out to the people and declare the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And what he meant was something totally different. <laughs> and everybody understood. They celebrated the wedding feast. It's now consummated. It's complete. Now, you have to understand, God's passion is that the bride of Christ, which is the church, the people of God, would be united to him. And this is all through the scriptures. You can go to Isaiah 62.5 and see it. You can go to a whole bunch of places, all the way from the Old Testament to Revelation. I'm going to read to you just from Hosea, one of the minor prophets, something. This is Hosea 2, verses 14, 16, and 19. Um, Speaking about infidelity of God's people. And he uses the term adultery, and he sees it as They've been unfaithful to me, but then he sees about a reunion. And this is how God is. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, for no longer will you call me my Baal, you know, false gods. 
and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. The passion of God is that sinners would repent and return. Joy is the result. Joy in heaven. You know, the, in Luke 15, the three parables of lost things, the coin, the, shep, the lost sheep, and then the lost son, it says how much more joy there will be in heaven over one sinner who repents and returns than over 99 righteous persons who didn't need to repent. All of heaven rejoices when a sinner returns to God, and Christ is the way that happens. What he's done for us on the cross makes that possible. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We are going to celebrate a birthday next Sunday, the incarnation of the Son of God who came so that people could be won back to him. That is God's passion, and that's his joy. And you see, the apostle, or excuse me, John the Baptist understood He understood that the crowds leaving him and going to Jesus was a fulfillment of God's desire for his people to be united to him and to know him. So he said, my joy is complete. I must decrease and he must increase. That's where happiness comes from. So I want to encourage you to think through this. Have you embraced these things and accepted these three Ps? God's provision, God's purpose for you, and then God's passion that lost people would come to faith. You'll get happiness in this life from lots of things, but your greatest will be seeing somebody come to the Lord. And it's even more powerful if it's through your efforts, if God uses your witness, your stories, your invitation, whatever it is, to bring somebody to the Lord. And then you've got this going for you. One, it's now an eternal thing. That's forever. Those people that led you to Christ, you'll see for eternity and you will be thanking them. The people that you've brought to Christ will be thanking you for eternity. There will be joy forever. So it's eternal. And then the other thing is, it's God's joy. You will be having happiness at the same thing that is making all of heaven happy. How powerful that is. So next Sunday is Christmas Eve. And we are going to rejoice, which is the verb form of joy. We are going to rejoice in the truth that the God of love came to save us, to reconcile us to himself. And I want you to make his increase the source of your joy. Think about how you could do that. And you will be happy forever. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your beauty. We thank you for your abundance, for your kindness, for your mercy and your love. Lord, I pray for us that you would help us to have a desire for your happiness, to be our happiness. Lord, even now, would you help us let go of those things that have been pursued for our joy apart from you? Help us to receive what you have for us. I pray for joy overwhelming for your people. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.